Just a heads up, everyone. Though we look at things through an optimistic lens on this show, some of the topics may be triggering and some of the language may be adult. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Aggressive Optimism Podcast. I'm Jenna Edwards, and I've overcome some pretty serious adversity in my life. And I just recently realized it was all because of this mindset I call aggressive optimism. I knew I wasn't the only one living with this way of thinking, and as I always say, there's a million ways to do anything. So I wanted to do this podcast so I could have conversations with others and learn how they overcome adversity and achieve their big goals and dreams and create the life they want to live. So without further ado, let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Aggressive Optimism Podcast. I'm your host, Jenna Edwards, and today we are talking with the incredible Mari Morrison. Hello, Mari. Hello. Mari is an actor, a producer, a voiceover actor, and a mime, which I think is so fun. She's also a classically trained actress, human rights activist, and co-founder of the LA chapter of Amnesty International. And I cannot wait to talk to you today, Mari, about aggressive optimism, because you have gotten your amazing show, Feathers and Toast, up on Amazon. So everybody listening, you guys can go watch it. It's really fun. Uh, but Mari, I really want to know, like, Tell us a little bit more about Feathers and Toast, and then we're going to dive into um, kind of some of the, the hurdles that you had to overcome to make the show happen. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for that lovely bio introduction and, uh, and for inviting me on your show. I love your title. I just thought that again when you were saying it. It's um, great to be aggressively optimistic. Um, well, I came to LA and I started doing stand-up comedy, and somebody came to see my show and suggested over a lunch that I might want to create my own show and create a character, well, basically a character based on a mime artist, as mime artists are rare in these times. <laughs> I love that. So how long had you been in LA before you did the stand-up show? Well, I, I started doing stand-up after I'd been here just about two or three months. I met oh, wow. a comedy producer, yeah, that suggested that I did, and I did a bit of mime in it because I thought, you just have to be as different as possible. And I realized that people hate mimes. So oh my gosh, that's so funny. Well, what made you become a mime in the first place? Because that is like a totally random skill. Um, well, Donnie, you just have to try and look for niches in the markets and there's not many mimes. I mean, I've gone to Paris <laughs> and I've studied, um, as one should, if one's serious about a mime career. And, uh, and, <laughs> and, and I never really thought about using it too much until I came to LA and somebody told me there was a website, www.wehatemimes.com. And I thought, no way. <laughs> you try and reverse the tide. <laughs> oh, that's so fantastic. So you were doing miming yeah. in your stand up act, and somebody approached you about did they have an idea for the web series or, or the, what do you call it, short form? Right, yeah. because it's not just online. You can get it on Amazon, which I have on my television. So, yeah, yeah, thank you. Well, I mean, basically, somebody from Paramount, uh, who's now become a friend, had had suggested that I create my own show based on a mime character. Um, so <laughs> I spent six months working it out because in Paris, at the school I went to, they talked about every performer having one specific clown, like like Charlie Chaplin with the Tramp so that you have one aspect of yourself you can really push, a bit like a caricature. In a, oh, in interesting. Like somebody with big ears or big nose or something. 
So I spent six months really thinking about it and I created the character of Tallulah Grace, which is the main character of the show Feathers and Toast. But I had initially thought that it would be that I would go in and pitch it as a half an hour show. And so I, I did six little episodes without any idea of it being a web series. I thought that would just be an, anim, you know, an example of where the character is going that I could use in a pitch. But somebody after I'd shot it all said, you should put it on the internet and do it as a web series. So, Oh, that's so fascinating. And when they said that to you, what, what was your initial reaction? Not even externally, but internally. Um, well, I, I, I knew nothing really about web series, uh, you know, at that time, particularly, you know, I, I probably watched a few, but I hadn't really known too much about it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but I thought, well, yeah, why not? I mean, the person that told me about it made it sound extremely easy that you just, <laughs> and then you get hundreds of thousands of views and then you're invited to have your show at Paramount. So the way he sold it to me was utterly a dream and, and sadly to say that I was not exactly that's so interesting. Well, the reason I ask what your internal thoughts were is because oftentimes I feel like we, especially as actors and creative people, are waiting for others to give us permission in and in the form of hiring us. And so it's oftentimes difficult for us to uh, just dive in and create our own content and make our dreams come true for ourselves. And I don't think it's just that way for creative people either. I mean, I feel like it's that way for everybody. At some point in our lives, we have to take charge and be like, this is my dream. This is what I want to be doing. How can I make it happen? And if I have to make it happen for myself, then I have to overcome a whole heck of a lot of internal voices, I feel. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, because initially when the, the um, person from Paramount suggested I write my own show, my first, my first thought was, I'm not qualified to do that. I haven't gone to USC and I have no Thank screenwriting qualification. You know, I felt like I'd be a fraud uh, that people study that. And I'd written my own stand-up, but I hadn't written anything beyond that at all, ever. So I have suffered from that, struggled with that, for sure, for sure. And now, now it's still, you know, I've written the, pit, um, the half an hour pilot, which was agony for me. And now I'm able to say I'm not actually a writer. Uh, <laughs> I'm a performer, I'm a producer. I'm a mime and a both of, you know, I've got various other things to my belt, but I also know what my skill set is and I'm not going to go through agony and, I mean, it is really hard to write. It's, you gotta, you gotta try it in order to find that out though, right? And so what, what did you do in order to kind of overcome that imposter syndrome, for lack of a better term? Well, I um, that actually there are different ways to skin a cat. Um, you know, and just because somebody might sit down and I had all the books out about um, how to save a cat, actually, you know, that one. How I love that book so much. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, but that actually panicked me because I thought, oh my gosh, how do I know what to do by page six or whatever? And then I thought, well, I'm going to create this. I started improvising and filming the improvisations. And then I sent that to a few directors who I'd worked with and I started honing it in a way that I could, could do it. So I guess I worked out my own way that I could do it. And actually, the, I've done two seasons of Feathers and Toast, and I did it, did it in a way that Curb Your Enthusiasm was shot in terms of each uh, episode, I had a structure of what I needed to hit, but the actual dialogue was completely improvised. Oh, I didn't know that that's how Curb Your Enthusiasm was done. 
Well, I mean, I, I think actually now that I'm realizing things on a podcast, that's what I've been told. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a very interesting um, approach, especially if you've got actors who are strong in improv. Why not? Yeah, for me, that was the most fun as well. And because especially when it came to season two, which I shot with other actors, season one was just me. Um, it, it, uh, we had to shoot an episode every hour. Uh, so it had to be with very strong other improvised you know, performers, and apart from obviously the episode with the cat, which was impossible to <laughs> <laughs> credentials. Um, but I wanted to say too, that when we're talking about obstacles, there were quite a lot of constraints on me, the main one being money. Um, so I could only have one setup. I could only have the camera facing one way. Oh, interesting. I didn't have money uh, or, or time or anything to shoot the opposite, the reverse. And actually, that was a total godsend because I, I do believe that with, when you start putting constraints on, uh, on a piece of art, that's when your imagination and when other things happen. And actually, it's, a lot of times people have asked me how I came to the style choice of having the cameraman Diego never on, on screen. <laughs> and that was actually a financial constraint, but it worked to help style the show and give it a different kind of edge and a different voice. So I feel like um, when you're starting whatever your projects are, what may be a problem, oftentimes you can turn that to your advantage rather than it being you know, a stumbling block that you can't get over. That's a great mindset shift, isn't it? I always say I'm creative in a constructive environment. Like yeah. if somebody tells me to, you know, paint the world, I'm like, uh, uh, I have no idea where to start, you know? But if someone gives me like a little box and they're like, here, make something cool out of this. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I know exactly what the parameters are. And I feel like oftentimes people don't don't look at those parameters, like you're saying, as a creative endeavor. They feel like their hands are being tied. And I love that you're talking about the fact that they're not. It's just a different different way of creating something. Yeah, yeah. That's I, brilliant. I, somebody gave me advice right at the beginning of this whole process. Um, a businessman in London that I used to talk to every few months, a, a guy who I used to work with. Anyway, so it was very clean cut business type advice. And he said to me, Listen, the number one thing where a company goes bust or something doesn't work is when the person overextends themselves financially. Mm. If you can do something really good that it catches the attention of someone else, they will know that if they put money into it, it can be a lot better. But better have that than overextend yourself, max yourself out on credit cards, and then have it not be so good. Do you know what I mean? So uh -huh. that's another reason that I thought, okay, I'm not going to um, even go outside because I didn't have proper mics. And I didn't want the sound to really suffer. So, yeah, I, you know, I took that on board and um, was glad that I had that advice. I took that a lot in my life. Well, I love that. So what do you think your biggest challenge, once you got it made, it was up online for how long before it went to Amazon? It, well, it was an, online for a couple of years because I took it around the festival circuit. And also I did about 200 vlogs. We did weekly vlogs. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a different series with the character. And then I did a live show. Um, I hosted a French uh, cabaret company called Cabaret Versatile. They had a residency here in Beverly Hills that I hosted as Tallulah for a couple of years. So <laughs> basically done, um, you know, a lot of different incantations. I guess what, what my biggest obstacle was after having made it was marketing, promotion, mm -hmm. 
all that kind of thing because it wasn't an arena that I knew at all. So I literally was in the library. I took books out on Twitter and learned how to do different things um, and had to just educate myself on social media, really. Interesting. Interesting. And so now you obviously had so many unique outside the box ways of marketing uh, feathers and toasts. That's so fascinating. What like you do a lot. <laughs> you take on a big projects. Like you and I met working on a video called Don't Silence Me. And I'll put the link for that video in the page show description because it's an, it's an incredible project, but it was a big, big, big project, right? And you've also co-founded the LA chapter of Amnesty International and you, you're doing feathers and toasts on your own, basically. What what do you say to yourself to essentially give yourself permission to kind of dream big and go after these big goals? Well, first of all, sometimes I don't necessarily know they're going to be so massive. Like in the case <laughs> of the video, Don't Silence Me, which was written for me by a good friend of mine in London, a singer-songwriter, Sadie Jamet, who had written the song in response to hearing of um, my sexual, uh, sexual assault that happened to me at the beginning of my career in Paris by a director. And when she wrote me that song, I was so touched and so moved. And when she asked me to do the video, I initially thought that it might be me recording it on my iPhone and that just she and I and maybe my mum would ever watch it. Uh, and then it, the project grew to where it has been six, very successful. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, it, a lot, well, a lot of people have seen it. It's also been on television and, and on the radio, radio and various things. And I did a world tour, but I never thought that was what I, that's not how I started. And that was a really good lesson for me because I'd always before been thinking, right, I need to control everything and know exactly the outcome. But it was the total opposite with Don't Silence Me. And in a way it was just, I, by not having such a firm grip on things, I allowed essentially magic to happen because it, I just put one foot in front of the other and then somebody said, let's put it on CBS and somebody said, let's take it to Paris. And I was just open to accept that and just say yes. And so that was a real lesson I learned through that, that um, allowing something, the space to grow as it needs to be. Um, and did you have like any advice for our listeners on how to allow? I feel like that's a big struggle Struggle a lot of us have, especially me. I'm a control freak. So <laughs> I definitely have to practice letting go and allowing things, especially good things, to come into my life. Um, again, it's a practice for me. So what was that like for you? Like, Do you have any, any techniques or tips that you could share that have allowed you to allow? Um. Uh, this is such new territory for me because I, too, I'm going to use the past tense, have been a control freak. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm a recovering control freak. <laughs> my zenith of zen. I am the all-knowing. People can come and seek my advice. This is the first time anyone has ever asked me what was my... I mean, I think I, I, think I, I wasn't putting pressure on it to deliver me anything specific. Also, because it was... You know, it was part of my healing from the trauma myself. And mm -hmm. uh, so I guess I didn't force something into it. I wasn't trying to, I never sat down last summer and thought this needs to happen. Otherwise I feel like it's a failure or something. Right. Uh, it's kind of, I mean, I'm not quite sure how I did that. I, I think I literally 
what helped me, right, is there's a guy called Sir Ranulph Fiennes and he climbed Mount Everest on the third attempt. And the first two, he failed. And when he was being interviewed about this, the interviewer said, why do you think you succeeded on the third time but failed on the first two? And he said, because the first two times I was so focused on this is Everest, this is Everest. Mm. I, you know, that he got not the bends, but whatever that altitude sickness is when you go too fast or, you know, he got ill and had to be taken off. But the third time when he was successful, he just went to base camp one and then, you know, camp two or whatever the, and, and he broke it down into manageable size chunks. And I've never forgotten that interview. And I think I've not always managed that at all, but with Don't Silence Me, I think I did manage to do that where I just saw the shoot date, the promotion, the event. I didn't look much beyond what was actually happening and that, that I guess, allowed the road to come up and meet me and, and take me further than I could have thought. That's amazing. And do you think, because I know that you co-founded the LA chapter of Amnesty International after uh, Don't Silence Me was out into the world. Do you, did you approach that endeavor with the same attitude? Yeah, totally. Because also, this is the first time I've ever done anything like uh, running a chapter of a nonprofit. I'm not somebody that knows, you know, and I'm doing it with somebody and Nikki, who also it was both of our time, first time doing this. So yeah, the first meeting that we had in February was very sticky and awkward for both of us. I don't think <laughs> we didn't know what we were doing. And, um, and it wasn't actually until the month of May when I just thought, uh, I, because I think I had the same weight on me with, um, with the Amnesty chapter, a bit like thinking I was a fraud because I'm not a screenwriter. I was sort of thinking with the amnesty, hang on, I don't really, how do I chair a meeting? Especially when there's only four of us. I mean, it's not like I'm chairing. <laughs> but there are procedures that need to be followed because it's a part of a bigger organization. So you do have to take that into consideration and, and take it seriously. So how did you take it seriously, even though you're kind of probably all looking at each other like, what happened? <laughs> Eventually I just, I think, and this, this I think was significant because this was in the May meeting and in April I had done the world tour with the music video and holding panel discussions around the Me Too movement in London, Paris, and Glasgow. So in, in the meeting that I had at Amnesty when I came back from that, I was much more direct. And I just sort of took the, the bull by the horns and within two days had set up a, an alliance with a refugee agency here in LA. And we started working with a family of refugees from El Salvador. So I think when I got out of my own way and just thought, okay, I'm going to stick to parameters of normal protocol for a meeting but apart from that this is Mari and this is how she's running a meeting yeah of anything that how I ought to be doing it you know what I mean interesting so um it seems like and I know this to be true because I've I've experienced this with you uh the don't silence me music video process seems to have brought out the leader in you am I wrong Oh, thank you for saying that. I think um, I think that is what's happened, and it's been you know shaky. I won't say how old I am because obviously, <laughs> but um, it's it's um, a new space for me to stand up and own, and it reminds me of Marianne Williamson, and I'm going to butcher this quote, but something along the lines of, you know, more people are scared of the power that they do have, not that not what they don't have. Absolutely, and I think that resonates with me. It's it's a new place to stand, and so. I guess my question for you is, was there a moment where you, let me do a little backstory. I just gave a presentation to about 500 uh, high school 
students at this leadership program. And it was amazing. So I spent the entire day yesterday talking about leadership. And I realized we oftentimes want to be leaders, certain, certain personalities, obviously not everybody in the world, but I feel like most of our listeners want to be leaders in at least some aspect of their lives, right? Like being a leader as a mom, being a leader as a community member, being a leader in our jobs. What was there a moment for you where you gave yourself permission to step into that leadership role? Um, I don't know if I could pinpoint an actual moment. Okay. Yeah. The day after I did the CBS interview, I think that was, I was so in shock that I was able to do a live TV interview talking about my sexual assault that I, I, I think that was a moment where I felt extremely proud of my strength that I hadn't realized that I'd ever be that strong. But I That's don't amazing. Being a leader. So it's not, it wasn't necessarily like a decision, but that was kind of a tipping point for you where you had been pushed into this leadership position. But after that interview, you walked into it willingly. Yeah. Is yeah. that a good way of describing it? That's amazing. And I think that we all need to hear that, right? Because so often we think there's only one way to get there or one way to do it or one way, um, just one way. And so for me, one of my biggest missions is to say, like, there's a million ways to do everything. I mean, I've said that ad nauseum, but it's the same with developing that leadership attitude or deciding to be a leader. Like, however you become comfortable with the leadership position it's going to look different for everybody. Yeah, and actually, I think it's worth looking up a definition of the word leader. Because mm-hmm. sometimes we can be intimidated or um, you know, have a certain opinion about words that actually, once you look at them and what they mean and think about them quietly, sometimes, you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Abstract thought of, oh my gosh, a leader is Gandhi or um, you know, whatever, a grand figure. But actually, no, you can have a leader in your own community or in your own whatever you're doing, obviously, like you said, as being a mother. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that you're, you're suggesting we all basically define leadership for ourselves. Yeah. You know, and, and that I think goes along with like defining success for yourself. And what you're saying is success maybe wasn't looking at the big picture. When the picture becomes overwhelming, you're instead looking at this base camp, right? Like that's my definition of success today. I'm going to get to base camp one. I mean, you need to make sure you're on the right mountain. So I think <laughs> that's a really good point. <laughs> I think, you know, yes, to look at the base camp one for sure, but you need to make sure you're on Everest and not Kilimanjaro or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> I feel like that's a whole other topic of conversation, my friend, and we should definitely have that um, because it's true. I think uh, a friend of mine and I always talk about like when we first started our careers, we would we would think, oh, I'm really good at this. So I'm going to create this path and then just have a bridge to the dream mm-hmm. instead of going on the path that is where the dream lives. Mm-hmm. You know, so same thing, right? You like climb one mountain thinking you're going to build a bridge over to the next mountain. It's like, yeah. wh- why don't you just climb that mountain? But yeah. sometimes that mountain's really scary. Yeah. And so we have to, I think for, that's what aggressive optimism is all about, right? It's like, I'm going to climb the mountain that's scary because my dream is on that mountain. And I have to be aggressively optimistic about the fact that I can overcome any of the obstacles that get in my way. Yeah. 
So on that note, if you can believe it, we are almost out of time and I want to get to, uh, if you, do you have a favorite quote for our audience? I have a quote from a, a gorgeous poem by Mary Oliver and it, I just love it so much. This Now tell me, what is it that you are going to do with your one wild and precious life? And I just love that. It's so powerful, right? It's like, it's like such a poignant question. What are you going to do? Yeah. And <laughs> your point on make sure you're on the right mountain and why bother wasting a year, a day, a week on the wrong mountain? Yeah. Very clear that you're on the right. This is your one precious life. That's so good. That's so, so good. Do you have a favorite resource? Um, I don't have one specific, there's lots, I read a lot of biographies and autobiographies because that inspires me to see how other people have gone through dark times. Um, I think specifically for Feathers and Toast, I had a wonderful producing partner called Holly Payberg and she was amazing to help support our ideas together to bounce ideas off of, which was really helpful to get out of my own head and to help me create something together. So yeah, helpful to have a, a, a confidant, a partner, or somebody that's as invested as you are so you can sit for 10 hours talking about the same thing. I'll go mad. Right. And so what you're saying basically is find a resource that's right for you. Yes. Yeah. I love that. That's amazing. Um, and is there, other than that, a piece of advice you would have given yourself before you started out on any of these epic adventures? There's a piece of advice that I actually got from um, Brian Grazer's book on curiosity. And he said, be very careful if somebody, when you're at the beginning of a creative process, if you're pitching an idea and somebody says no, just say thank you very much. Don't ask them to describe why they're saying no, because you, your idea is in an incubation stage, ergo very vulnerable. And if somebody starts weighing in with all the reasons that will never work, you could easily believe it. And if he had believed that, he would have never made Splash. Oh, wow. Isn't that amazing? I, I totally get it. My friend and I often talk about our creative process. And he, when he first started out, would like literally disappear. Like it was when we were, we were first becoming friends. Mm -hmm. And now he's one of my very, very, very best friends. So we talk about our processes ad nauseum, like literally every single day. But his process was just to disappear. He goes away for like months at a time and you don't hear from him. And you're just like, are you okay over there? And it's because he's so protective of his idea and fleshing it out the way he wants to. Yeah. And like he and I both, um, me especially, I've noticed I, I get into opinion overload and I think I'm doing everything wrong. And so I just stop doing, like I completely stop. And so I've had to start adopting his philosophy and what you just said about Brian Grazier and, and be like, I'm so protective of my, of my like precious little creative child that I don't even tell people when I'm creating until I'm ready. I, I've been the same way, getting, taking on board too many people's opinions. And I think you often have to just think of the words, consider the source and just, you know, be very clear who you're even talking to, who you're allowing in when you do start allowing people in. Definitely. Well, I also think it's like I can respect somebody so much. And, and so the, the source is very respectable, right? But at the same time, there's a million ways to create yeah. anything. And so maybe their way doesn't work for me. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that's so important for all of us. Like we have to really be okay with how we do things mm -hmm. and not like think that they're good or bad or 
whatever. Like I think I get so mad at myself for the way I have to like process information because it's a process for me. And I like, I have to talk it out for like an hour. And my poor husband who's internal with his processing is just, I'm probably going, why am I even, why do you have to talk about this more? Like we've already made the decision, but it's just the way that I work. And so lately I've been having to say to myself, that's just the way you are. It's not good. It's not bad. It just is. And the more you beat yourself up about it, the less you get done. And, you know, back to your quote, what are you going to do with this one precious life? Are you going to spend your time beating yourself up? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think that's, we're so overload of other people and what everyone else is doing. And, and, and I guess that what the FOMO thing, fear of missing out, but maybe it's not quite that fear of like, am I not doing this right? I mean, I even said that. Absolutely. <laughs> I kept saying, I thought you were going to get rid of me, fire me. I mean, I don't know if you can fight because I'm not doing this right. I'm coming in here with all these questions from books I was reading on, on therapy. And, and she looked at me and she said that there's no real wrong way to do this. But even as being a patient and a therapist, I was thinking, am I doing this wrong? <laughs> I know, right? Am I healing incorrectly? <laughs> it's such a silly question, but I totally get it. And I think if we really looked at ourselves, we'd all find areas that we do that and, and we have to stop it. We just have to stop it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, oh my gosh, Mari, you're amazing. Oh, Jenna, thank you. So are you, you're, um, what, congratulations on starting such a well-needed resource. <laughs> Optimism is needed in the face of the tsunami of uh, dark headlines that we're having. So uh, well done for being brave and courageous. Oh, thank you so much. I, you know, it only works if I get to talk to people like you. It really does. So I'm, I'm very grateful that you gave our, your time. And it also only works if people listen. So to everyone listening right now, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, you've been listening to the wonderful, talented Mari Morrison. I am going to put all of her links on the page at aggressiveoptimism.com. So go check it out. And definitely check her out. Her show is awesome. She's awesome. We want to support her. And again, you've been listening to the Aggressive Optimism Podcast. I'm your host, Jenna Edwards, and I will talk to you tomorrow. Have a great day. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you'll join me next time. The Aggressive Optimism Podcast is made possible through affiliate programs. So if you'd like to support the podcast and get some really great products for yourself, head on over to the offerings page at aggressiveoptimism.com. And if you want a little more aggressive optimism in your life, please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Jenna Edwards Life. I'll see you over there. Until then, have a good one.